How's it going, everybody? This is Chris Adams with Beyond the Blind Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes under BTBN, Facebook, same name, Instagram, same name, same story, BTBN. Um, what's going on, everybody? I got a, another good one for you guys today. The weekend is finally over. Um, you know, it was a good, nice weekend, nice and hot. Got out to the lake a few times, did some swimming, so... uh Ready to dive back into the week. Um, we gave the uh, Buckeye Burl call away and announced that winner today. And uh, I turned that other new green uh, Buckeye Burl call that had the uh, the hybrid mix to it. And it just turned out super cool. So uh going to figure out a way to do a giveaway with that. Um I don't know, maybe uh, try to grow the uh, BTBN podcast group. If you haven't joined that, join that. You guys can talk about the podcast, uh, get the you know, the giveaways and stuff like that. Just information quickly, as quickly as you can. You can uh, also kind of give some feedback on what you think is going on and uh, just different ideas. So it's just an easier way than having to share it to 10 different groups. So... Um, if you want to join that group, we'll find a way to do the duck call. I don't know. Um, maybe something like who, whoever invites the most people to the group or something. I don't know. I don't want to spam everybody, but I'll think of something. I'll think of something. Um, like I said, you can always check out if you want a boat anchor or a uh, paperweight for the desk. Give me a holler. I'll be glad to uh, put you on the list for some kind of duck call imitation you know, I make calls, but uh, there's lots of guys that make calls. Anyway, um, today we've got Mr. Kent Eason on of Louisiana, and uh, he makes Eason Cajun calls. Dude is an absolute killer of a duck call maker, and uh, I don't know, man. I've been looking forward to it. His name's been brought up on a few of these suckers, so I just reached out to him. I'm like, hey. I've heard your name mentioned enough times, and uh, why don't we just do one with you? So, that's what we're doing. Um, yeah, got nothing else to start for you guys. Uh, it'll it'll be a fun one. So, without further ado, uh, Mr. Kent Eason. All right, guys. How are you doing, Ken? I'm absolutely fine, Chris. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, you were saying right before we started rolling, Ernie mentioned your name, um, I've had Channing on a bunch of times, he's mentioned your name, just about everybody that I've talked to, and I was like, man, I gotta reach out and just get him on here, it's uh, it's tough with all the great call makers on here, I've kind of wrote myself a list of just everybody, and then kind of checking them off as I've, you know, sent out a message, hey, you want to jump on the podcast, and then I have to update it when they respond, and then try to coordinate all the calendars to where I can line up, you know, a schedule for guys' times that work and stuff like that, so it was yeah. just a matter of time, brother. Yeah, I'm easy, man. I work I work week on, week off, and uh, I'm on my seven days off, so I don't have nothing to do for, but make calls this week, and... uh yeah, um, and it's easy to get a hold of me. I've been around a long time, and uh, like I said, I was old-fashioned, man, like we talked about earlier. <laughs> well, it's great that you had the time, the, the seven days on, seven days off, man. That's a, is, 
do you work like 12s and like flip shifts yeah. when you're on yeah um i work seven twelves. um i go in and out of the house uh, uh I, I actually retired after 20 23 years as a firefighter paramedic uh you know on a, a professional uh city fire department and then uh got stupid went back to school and became a pa and started working for a cardiology practice and and uh I saw an opportunity uh, to keep working, sort of like uh, a paramedic, a firefighter does. And I approached a, a cardiology group and said, hey, man, how would you like to go home, even if you're on call, and let me handle all the uh, all the calls that come through the night, all the patient admissions, all the troubleshooting, and you just get to go home and go to bed. And uh, he said, dude sign on this dotted line we want you and i've been doing it for 16 years now and uh sort of sort of winding down my work career i've been working 40 years i'm i'm just about ready to stop and just tinker duck calls just i've always i'll always be doing duck calls dang man that's well deserved the pa road is a really really smart one with the the freedom it gives you almost like almost as much as a freaking doctor man it's a it's pretty wild yeah, um, well, I was at a crossroad. I was 42 years old and had 23 years on the fire department. I only needed to do 20, and uh, I was the EMS director. I wasn't going to go any higher, and, and uh, you know, I knew I was ready to retire from the fire department. I was like, man, I either want to be a physician or I want to be uh, a mid-level practitioner, like a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Then. Me not being a nurse, the only choice I had was to be a PA. And so I, I went on and um, went that route. We actually have a med school here with the PA program in it. And uh, uh, I got accepted and two and a half years later became a PA and started practicing. That's crazy, man. And uh, being a fireman, firefighter, i uh, that's what got me into the Navy. Um I was at uh, one of our academies here in Springfield, and I got you know my one, two, my hazmat, all my certifications in a, a year and a half of school. And I went for our city in uh, Springfield, Missouri, and uh, that's really the only good paid department around here. Since then, there's been a lot of other departments that have popped up and become you know full-time guys and offered a lot more benefits. But uh, I really wanted to get on at Springfield, and I went to my first try out took the test and you know scored 100 on the test and so did about 80 other guys <laughs> and uh had been volunteering for about a year and so had every hundred and other whatever other candidates were out there and was gone the next semester i was working on my emt license that was the the game plan and everybody else had been doing that and i was like dude you know, I scored perfect on the test. I did everything physical perfect. You know, I put myself in the top percentage, but these guys have all this experience. And uh, we had 100, 140, 150 guys try out that had all the same certifications, qualifications as I did. Wow. And they took two. And I was wow. like, I've got to do something different, man. So I, uh, I contacted my Navy recruiter. And he's like, oh, hell yeah, we all do firefighting out here on the ships. You live on the boat, so everybody's a firefighter. <laughs> so that's what got me into the Navy. And then I uh, came time to get out, and I had kiddos, and I was like, ah, you know, I don't know if I want to mess with this anymore. But 
there are a lot of times that I miss it and miss the interaction. So that was the whole lead up to the question. Do you do you find yourself missing firefighting at all? Oh, oh, I do. Uh, you gotta you gotta think though. In 1978 or 79, when I came on. Nobody wanted to be a fireman. Um, everybody, you know, the oil field was hot, and so everybody went to the oil field down here in Louisiana. And so I always wanted to be a firefighter. I grew up right behind a, a uh, substation uh, here in Shreveport, and I became what was called the firehouse grunt. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I knew every firefighter in that house on all three shifts, and um, I pretty much lived there at the fire station after school hours and uh you know watching those guys grow up respecting those men and uh and then later women uh in that career i knew that was what i wanted to be so when i graduated high school i applied got hired there was no pretest. there was no psyche vows like there is now you know there was not even agility tests um you know we we got hired on the spot and uh, did my uh, rank, you know, firefighter, driver, captain. And then we started the EMS division in 85. And uh, I became the first, there was 22 of us that took the paramedic course. And I was the only one that passed everything first time around. So then they stick me on a rescue truck and I had to run every call in the city. Uh, until somebody else passed, you know, but I wouldn't trade, trade that for anything, man. That was a good career. I do miss the men, um, you know, in a job. Uh, of course, you don't want to, you know, see all that death and dying, but that's just part of it. And uh, you just sort of grow a tougher skin and, and, and keep on going. It gets harder when you give your own children and now your grandchildren. But it just led it into the career of PA, and it's just, it was a, a perfect transition for me and uh now i'm in my 60s and i'm i'm ready to think i'm getting ready to hang up the hat and just turn duck calls maybe i can get more custom duck calls out there for these guys that want them because i get messages every day and i'm just i cannot accommodate everybody i just can't do it <clears throat> what is uh what is your best method of trying to figure that thing out handle it i've talked to I, I had Ernie on, and one of the questions I was going to ask him was his, his style of, uh, you know, I turn what I want, and whoever wants it yeah. gets it type thing. And we got an hour and 20 minutes into it. I never even got to ask him that because we were just talking about other things. Yeah, um, well, I got into the books or the list or whatever you want to call it. I called it the list, and... Um, my calls got popular a few years back, and I don't know, I, I ended up with about 150 names on the list before I knew it, and I was like, oh man, I, I've got to I've gotta put a, an end to this list thing, and I'll be honest, I'm almost through. It's taken me almost two years now to get through with that list, and I'm going to take a little break, make an Ernie Ross way, what I want, when I want, but that does not mean I won't get away from taking some customs here and there, but I will not let myself get into, you know, that many on a list, you know, and um, I, I just don't like that pressure. Man, I, I, I'm trying to get out of work, you know, talking about retiring. 
I want to enjoy the rest of my life. And, and part of that is, Hey, turning what I want when I want, but you know, I still have people that says, Hey man, I got a special occasion. Like I just did a call for Dustin Parker and I told him, I said, man, I'm not going to take no more call, but man, he hit my sweet spot. He's like, Hey man, I got a little girl. She needs your pink call. And I couldn't <laughs> turn it down. But, um, I called my buddy Owsley, Seth, and I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm looking for a special pink blank. And when he sent me that blank, oh, my gosh, man, I, I couldn't wait to dive into that blank. You know, it was like I was – it was all brand new again. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna take some orders, but it's going to be a little while. Um, <clears throat> I, I just need to – I need to get that big love back into it. And part of that is, is making what I want when I can – and get that love back into it. And this all started out as a hobby, man. I mean, I've been messing with duck calls since the age of nine. Um, it's sort of a heritage down here in Louisiana to, to hunt ducks. You you grow up in this area, man, everybody hunts and fishes, you know, and duck hunting just seemed to be the one thing that I fell in love with. And, um, you know, when we grew up, you were taught by your family how to run a call. And back then... You know, it was a double reed Jensen's. Uh, you know, that's the first call I, I started on was a double reed Jensen. And, and my uh, brother-in-law at the time was telling me, man, you sound pretty dang good on that thing. And I got to tinkering and, and figuring out the ins and outs of duck calls. And, you know, then as a, a teenager, the D2 Oak was the call to blow around here. And everybody had their little cuts they liked to do. And we go mow somebody's grass and, you know, make $5 a yard and go down to the local sporting goods store and they were $4.50. And we'd go buy a bunch of oats and we'd start cutting them and experimenting them. And I, I'm looking at the last oat I had as a youngster and I blew up into my um, probably mid-30s until I just couldn't scream on those things and bark them anymore because the, the cut we do, it takes a lot of air. And um, so then I got to tinkering with just single reed J frames, and and they're so versatile. You can make so many ducks out of one duck call. So that's what I focused on. And then it wasn't until the age of about 50 or 49 or 50, um, like in 2009 and 2010, I bought a lathe and started messing with it, taught myself that in the form called PHO. Uh, that's where I met, you know, Ernie and Aaron Wingert, and I met a bunch of those guys, Ron Davis, uh, all on the THO, and those guys I met on the internet ended up being some of the best friends I've ever shook their hands, you know, met their family, and uh, love on their kids. So it's it's a good it's a good tradition to be in a duck call uh, or just the game call business, game call world. It just it ties together the human element to to nature, and you're you're talking about growing up in Louisiana. I lived uh, right outside Pascagoula, the very you know south end of Mississippi Biloxi area, and coming, I went from there out to Virginia Beach, and that's just where I was stationed at. And going to the two different locations, I'm from Missouri, so we grew up out on the lake, out in the woods. I live in the Ozark Mountains, you know. Being outside was just part of growing up, and uh, then I moved down to the to the you know the Gulf Coast, and I was like, 
dude, this is awesome. It never gets cold. There's always something to do outside, always somewhere to go. Um, just being outside and being around and just all the different types of wildlife you guys have down there versus what I had, you know, here in Missouri. It was just a really, I love it. I love anything south of I-10, that is the south. The guys oh, that yeah. say they're, you know, I'm probably going to piss off a bunch of guys from, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee and North Carolina. I, North Carolina is not the South. It has the name North in it. But uh, if you're south of I-10 in that area, you know, that's the South. And it's just, Oh, yeah. That's the true Cajuns. That's that's where the culture at, is at. You know, that that culture, that, that Cajun, it um, – it started many, many years ago as, as people got exiled out of Canada and they put the people, they put those people in the, in the most productive, fertile ground in the world at the mouth of the Mississippi. And, and, uh, man, that culture just, just exploded. And even though I'm not from South Latina, I'm very proud of, of Louisiana. Uh, you know, I wasn't born here, but my mom and daddy got me down here at a very young age. I think I was six years old, and they got me down here, and you know I was raised down here, and it's it's a very proudful culture down here. But it's it's even more south of I ten, where the true Cajuns are at. I guess yeah, I should I should say close to I ten because there's some parts <laughs> of I ten that run pretty damn close to the uh, to the waterfront. So that's just kind of the the area. But yeah, exactly what you're talking about. It's a it's a really special place, and the people. Man, it is going there to where I was at in uh, the Hampton Roads area. And there's nice people everywhere. Don't get me wrong. But there is just something about the South, the way that everybody interacts with you. You know, it. I absolutely loved it there. And when I first got orders, I was like, Pascagoula, Mississippi, where the hell is this at? You know, like, I thought I was going to San Diego. I thought I was going to be, you know, hanging out with some on the beach and <laughs> doing all that stuff and then i got down there and i just absolutely fell in love with that area and uh it's something that we try to go down to you know at least pass through on vacation and stuff like that but uh i just love oh, yeah. it man and, and a lot of the uh a lot of the people from up north they take offense when they hear sir and ma'am but they got to understand it is taught to these children at a very young age, my three-year-old grandson in my house right now, he is—he's about to get a doggone, you know, spat on the bottom if you don't keep saying <laughs> "sir" and "ma'am" because that is what you do down here, and uh, it's just—it's just the 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 manners that you have down there is talked to you, and we respect no matter what your age is, but we respect you know. Uh, the, just the human beings here, and we're gonna te- we're gonna call you ma'am, or we're gonna call you sir, and uh, it's no disrespect. It's just what we do. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story. I was down there, um, and we were going to a gas station. I was there with um, one of my my higher ups. He was a chief, I believe, either that or a senior chief. You know, a guy that had been in the navy twenty years, and he was just kind of an yeah. old, crusty guy, and. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the same thing, you know, people around the military, you call everybody sir, ma'am, you know, unless they're in the military and you call them by their rank half the time. But uh, we were going to a gas station, and uh, it was probably the second day I'd been around the guy. And he goes, sir, where's your bathroom at? And he goes, sir is my father. Don't call me sir. And he goes, motherfucker, where's your bathroom at? Does that work better for you? (laughs) 
Yeah, we hear it all the time, and, and they're not going to change anybody from down there. That's just what we did. Because look, our mamas would backhand us if, if it, you know, my mama's been in the grave for a long time. But if you knew, I didn't say sir or ma'am uh, to somebody that uh, that I was talking to. Shoo, she'd be rolling in her grave. <laughs> so, who got you into hunting? Was that something that uh, was passed down through the family, or did you and your siblings just no, uh, pick it up? Well, no, um, my brother's career was career military, and uh, he was more uh, baseball, basketball, football, kind of, not football, but um, softball for the U.S. Air Force, and uh, my sister never got into sports, but um, my grandfather, my dad's dad, they said I was the spitting image of him. I did everything that he did, even though I never met him. He died before I was born. But he was always the fisherman, the hunter. Uh, he lived in the in that area in southern Illinois. Uh, where um, I'm trying to think of that um, that refuge right there. Um, it's where the Grounds family hunts around. But um, anyway, I, when my my sister uh, had her first husband, he and his father were big duck hunters, and they took me at the age of nine, and that first day, I killed my first mallard drake, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this, and they introduced me to duck calls, and man, I just I just fell in love with it, and uh, I took my own initiative to, to learn how to bulk call, to read ducks, you know, you spend that many days in the duck blind, and, and we spent a lot of days. I hunt every day except Christmas down here, and have done that uh, as, as long as I can remember. You know, <laughs> Since out of you high school. Your first mallard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, we hunt a lot of days down here, and um, uh, and then just taking my own initiative that hey, I want to make this call sound a little different, and playing with it, and learning what did what uh, on a duck call, and then. Later in my life, I was like, man, I just want to make my own calls. And so I started tinkering with them. And then um, my first year at NWTF, I did well. And and first time I ever sent one to Real Foot, I did okay. And um, then all of a sudden, people said, hey, I want to buy one of your calls. That You know, that, that tickled me too. So then it just sort of exploded from there um, and all. And now I've met some really good people. And, man, I've traveled the country and... Canada just because of the duck calls and the people I met and uh, people I call true friends man absolutely great friends all through duck calls it's something that I've mentioned on uh, a few other of the podcasts is it's uh it through the duck call world man it just even you know I got into it when I, I first started hunting and you meet people and talk to people that otherwise in life you never would have talked to you know just Yep. You know, out of circumstance, but then you you get even deeper into the calling world and the call making world, and you meet people from all over the country, all over the uh, heck, even Canada, and uh, oh yeah, you just meet all these different guys that otherwise you never would have met, and it's it's a brotherhood, and it, it's just something that's really really special, and it's something you don't find. All, it reminds me so much of being in the military. Of just guys yep. from all over with different backgrounds, but just have so many like minds and uh, especially call makers because you you have the same experiences. Everybody went out there and had their first call and realized how 
over their head they were when they first started making it, you know, and you're like, oh, good night, you know, like I thought I knew what the heck I was doing. And it's just so many shared experiences. And that's what a lot of the feedback that I get on this thing is with uh, newer guys that have been turning a couple months or less than a year. And they're like, man, I can't believe, you know, a Brad Samples or, you know, Ernie Ross has, you know, some of the same problems I'm running into now they had 10 years ago. So it just brings everybody together, and it's a yeah. it's a real special thing, man. I really love it. Oh, I know, and and then sometimes uh, this newer generation, and I'm not trying to step on toes about the millennials or whatever they're called now, but <laughs> you know, back in the old days, we had older uh, mentors that knew exactly what we needed to do to to fix whatever problem we had, but yet they wouldn't tell us exactly what to do but they would lead us in the right direction and we ended up learning it ourselves and then going, okay, now I know. So now I know that if, if I have a call that keeps sticking, I, I know exactly what to do instead of running to, uh, you know, running to an older Joe Coulter. Hey, Mr. Coulter, what do I do to, to keep this call from sticking? And, you know, he would lead you in the right direction and you'd figure it out. And now, you know, from experience and, uh, and you're right about meeting these people like, man, you know, back in the older days, back in the uh, THO days, you know, I met and talked through a forum with Aaron Winger and Ernie Ross and, uh, and, and, and people like that. But then all of a sudden, next thing I know, I got people like, um, Chad Ward and Tyler Bull, who owns uh, Prairie Sky Outfitters up in Saskatchewan, and they had an idea of bringing these call makers together and hunting together. And that was the first time I ever hunted with um, with Ernie and, and Aaron, and those two became some very special friends that, uh, special enough that uh, Ernie and I, um, I go up there every January just to kill true migrating lessers. I mean, um, greater Canadians because we just don't get them here in North Virginia. We have a bunch of residents, but we don't get those those true uh, migratory greater Canadas. And so I go up there, and our wives ended up becoming great friends. And uh, and then I've shared the blind with uh, Aaron Winger not only in Canada twice. But now uh, we hunted with Joe Copeland out of uh, Montana on the Big Horn River. And also we hunted with Hunter Lewis. And, uh, you know, I'd heard about him, never met him. Oh, my God, man. These people were like people I have known all my life. And now we're all just one big family. Uh, Aaron and I was just talking about this other night. And uh, so, um, you know, I am thankful the good Lord put duck calls in my life just so I could meet these fantastic people. And you're right, Brad Samples, man, I've got so many new ways I do uh, uh, that I used to do an old way that would take me longer or more labor-intensive. And dude, Brad Samples would call me and go, hey man, you, you ain't got to do it that way. Let me show you. And he'd send you short little videos. And the next thing you know, I'm, I've got something better, faster, quicker, um, and more consistent and all it's because of one man wanting to share and truly help another guy. 
So, good people out there, man. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's amazing because, you know, we lose more waterfowl hunters every year. Um, they, you know, that's what you keep reading. The more less and less licenses, it, there's less people hunting. You know, my generation and everybody that's a little bit younger, there's less guys out there doing it. And if they're doing it, they're uh, they're doing it different than they used to, which is okay. That's the evolution of the sport. But passing on the, you know, there's something about call making that it ties you back to you know the early 1900s where where guys were out there making calls and. There's been guys out in their garages tinkering with different pieces of wood and, you know, pieces of plastic to make a reed, some, you know, soda cans. And it's just a, it's something, I don't, it's not unique to America because people have been doing it all over the world. But it's something that's so ingrained in our past that, uh, you know, guys like yourself and all the other call makers you mentioned, that we're continuing that tradition. And by guys helping each other out and continuing to push the evolution of call making and sometimes the teaching traditional methods, you know, like I was talking to Waylon about checkering and just some of the traditional stuff guys have done. I talked to um, uh, Ron Davis about his freaking brick work and that's stuff that if you picked up one of his calls, you know, you're like, is this thing from freaking 1920 or 2020, you know, because you've seen some of those classic styles forever and it's just... It keeps that tradition. It's a very traditional thing, and uh, it's always it's good to see it keep going because, yeah, you know, I don't think this thing's gonna be here forever. Uh, we're with the state of the country. You know, Canada's going crazy. They're pushing for gun changes and all that nonsense. But uh, I don't know that it's gonna be here forever. And you know, when my kids get to my age or their kids get to my age, like. Will it still be the same? And uh, as long as we're out there sharing information and pushing the new yeah. guys and training different people, it it continues yep. that tradition. Yeah, and, and and the thing about this group that we have is um, they're all caring people. Like um, you know, I, I have the one daughter. I never had a son, so but she hunted with me. Uh, but she doesn't care anything about duck calls. Man, I started getting my grandsons. My daughter started you know, having these grandbabies and I had grandsons. And then all of a sudden one day I, I get a call. I didn't even know, I never ordered it. And I get a call like from Andrew Hatton to my grandson. And I'm like, I call him up. What did you do that for? Oh man, I just wanted him to start his own collection. And from that one call from Andrew Hatton, my grandsons have better collections than I do. And now they got them from you name it, Rod, Mark Rogers, Brad's made them all. Uh, you know, Ernie Ross, uh, goose calls. They got they got prettier goose calls than I got from Ernie <laughs> Ross, and uh, and it's amazing. And man, let me tell you a talented guy, and that's Rob Baker. Rob Baker is one talented call maker, and uh, he's made a Spider Man with the help of Ashley making webbing inside a material of a call he's made my one grandson a uh, spider-man call and he makes the other one a b uh the transformer and and it is amazing then he did one for my granddaughter uh that had pinks and and purples and and uh, i'm just amazed at the generosity of the people that are out there in this world and the care that they have for 
but I, but I've also reciprocated. I've, I've sent all their their boys and uh, daughters their their calls, and I'm still working on a few more. But Lord knows, me and Andrew have known each other forever back in the THO day. And uh, I just got Alex's call the other day. I mean, I just wrote it down and said, I'm going to do it. And, man, it took me a year or so to finally get to it. But I got it, and I'm glad because Alex now is out there duck hunting. And I really enjoy seeing those pictures of, of all these boys hunting with their dads. I really do. And that is the most important thing, you know, getting the kids out there. And just, that's yep, what I was... Yeah, I was talking about mine, yeah. and I was like, man, I don't even care if I bring a gun, but I just want to throw some decoys and, uh, you know, pull the calls out and just have them watch birds work and understand. Because, you know, mine, I was into call making since they were one, one or two, and they've gone goose scouting trips, watched all, every TV show you could name, and, you know, you take them to Bass Pro, and they're out there naming off you know that's one of our things that we do is we go through bass pro and i have them do duck ids and they've been doing that since they could talk and it's oh, just, good you know it's just that they they love it and when we're driving by we'll be you know just on the road to somewhere and you'll see a, a flock of honkers flying off they're like dad look at them geese and it's, it just brings <laughs> a smile to your face we um my daughter grew up with us and she came out there hunting with us but She'll tell you real quick, she came for the breakfast. So <laughs> she, after she'd eat the breakfast, she'd get so sleepy. I, I had a cot out there, and she'd just go to sleep and uh, pet the dead ducks and go to sleep and then wait for us. To, she never would say, are we ready to go yet? Because she knew we were going to hunt, you know, at least till noon every day. And and uh, But she was going to get fed good, and everybody was really good to her. But now I'm ready to start that tradition with my grandsons, but the problem is 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 uh, our lakes are destroyed down here with a with an aquatic vegetation called giant salvinia and um uh it's it's ruined a spot i've hunted traditionally for 51 years in the same area uh and uh, the stuff grows on the lake and it covers it up and you, the they don't there's really not a chemical that kills it uh and you just can't eradicate it, and it just takes over. It uh, doubles its size in plant in 24 to 48 hours with temperatures over 90. Oh, God, so, the whole year. Yeah, so I really don't have an area that I was planning on handing down to my grandsons to duck hunt because it's ruined by the vegetation that's just getting worse and worse and worse. So I did something last year I've never done in my life, and I leased ponds. And uh, I had to go to Oklahoma to do it. So, so we killed quite a few ducks over there, but they're little bitty cow ponds, and you got to travel seven hours. Ooh. You know, and I, I hate to do that because my duck blind that I've hunted for 51 years is 15 minutes from my house. Oh, man. Tyler Hall was yeah. telling me about that aquatic vegetation because he wanted to talk about the hot cropping and stuff like that, and he was telling me... Uh, about that that vegetation how it was taking up all the water and he's like yeah the ducks don't have anywhere to freaking go because it's nope, just they don't. everything. It, and it grows on top of each other and just gets thicker and thicker i've had mud boats uh pro drives and gator tails shoot uh since probably the whenever they got first introduced here in the 80s or so and uh because we had a plant called uh water hyacinth and uh 
you could actually kill that with a cheap chemical called 2,4-D, and you could hold it back. And the ducks really didn't mind it, but for the salvinia, man, you the, your glycosides and your uh, diquats, it'll it'll kill it a little bit, but it's going to come right back, and, and it explodes. It, it just grows so fast. And uh, it, it's a big it's a big problem in the south uh, and our lakes. Do you think um, since you're a south guy, a southern guy, do you think that that has caused more more bird problems than like flooded corn and all that type of stuff up here? Uh, I'm I'm one of the believers that just um, I, I'm a, I'm a believer that I think there's less rice planted in Louisiana and and um, southern Texas so and, and I think the farmers are, are doing better with sugar cane uh, and so I don't think I, I think the ducks migration has changed for us where I hunt in northwest Louisiana because southwest Louisiana is not planting as much rice anymore so they don't have nothing to go down there and actually feed on and survive on um, and, and that's my theory. I, I am certainly not a bio, biologist. Uh, that's just one old man's theory. Uh, I don't know if I believe in all the hot cropping and all that stuff. I, I do know that I, I was glad I hunted. I, w- I had the opportunity to hunt ducks in the 70s and 80s when uh, it was nothing, nothing to, you know, decoy 100-mile ducks in one group. You know, now you're excited if you see 15 or 20 down here. Um, <clears throat> you just don't see it anymore. You don't see them big wads of mallards down there no more. You'll see big wads of great ups. I mean, our great ups have um, uh, exploded on the numbers. But even that now, in the last five to seven years, our numbers have gone way down and as far as harvest and seeing ducks. See, and that's something that uh, I was talking with him about, too, because I've heard that as well with the rice production. And then he was talking about, you know, this invasive species on the water. And I was like, well, heck, yep. man, if you don't have food and you don't have water, why the heck would they keep going there? Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think the ducks have shifted. I think they shift more west. Uh, and, and to me, I think it's just, you know, a, a, an animal, wild animal like that goes for, for food shelter you know water availability and and that's where they go you know uh we i think we still get some ancestral ducks um we still get ducks early in november you know we get to open up usually the second weekend in november and historically for years and years and years we've always done extremely well in that um from that second week in november all the way through thanksgiving um, and, and, you know, to me, it was those, um, ducks that just came back traditionally, ancestrally to the same areas, but those are getting fewer and far between. And like I said, I, I'm, I'm barely killing any ducks. I, I still try and keep a hole open or two here locally just to go. Uh, but I'm one of these that had to, to move with the ducks to go to harvest any ducks and, I'm also now traveling a bunch more. Like I said, I went to Montana. Uh, um, I will certainly uh, 
go where anybody says, hey, come on, man, let's share a bond together. I'm, I'm sort of enjoying that more now in my older uh, life than, than when I did when I was a young man said, nope, I'm not leaving here because I'm going to kill 36 <laughs> ducks today. <laughs> well, see, you're, you have the same problem as I do to a degree is I'm in uh, southwest Missouri, so mm-hmm. you are like six hours just straight south of us. I mean, you know, you have yep. Little Rock is just southeast of us, and then I have Fort yep, Smith. I'm three hours from Little Rock, yep. Yeah, and then Fort Smith is just southwest of us, and I'm like right in between them, but just due north of you. And uh, our flyway, you know, you have the Mississippi, and then you have the Central. Well, the Mississippi, from where I am at, is three hours away. And then your Central flyway doesn't start until about Tulsa, you know, west of me so it's like i'm right in that no man's land and looking at a map you know where shreveport is at in relation to me it's almost the exact same it's kind of like the birds go right around where we're at so that's what we've been having to do we've been having to go west to find birds yeah we we used to be we get that combination of central and mississippi flyway you know and and for years they would follow that red river which is right here i mean my duck blinds are uh, as the crow flies, you know, two miles from the Red River. That's a major navigable waterfowl, uh, waterfowl um, but it's just becoming less and less. And, um, there's more uh, people and organizations growing or planting refuges and hunting areas. And, you know, if I had the money, I'd do that same thing. But they're attracting and holding a lot more ducks now. And they're not having to, to uh, rely on the local uh public waterways around here i've always hunted public land love hunting public land yeah i can totally man it's uh it's interesting times and it's just you just have to adapt with the freaking ducks like i said 10 years ago here we had a lot more ducks i can't speak for 20 30 years ago because i wasn't hunting then but uh 10 years ago we had a lot more and it seems like every single year we get to about the last day of season and we're like Man, this thing is worse than it was last year. And, you know, the season is great. You always have a great time out hunting with your buddies. And it, I've really, you know, you have to be in it for the right reasons. You have to be in it for the camaraderie. But you can't help but notice there's less ducks every year. Like oh, you yeah. can have all the sentimental attachment to it in the world. But, you know, when you're not pulling the trigger, <laughs> you, you notice it at the end of the year. Yeah, we used to keep books and records, you know, what the weather was, what the wind was, temperature was, um, barometric pressure. We used to do all that, what species of ducks. And, man, about 10 years ago, we just stopped doing it, you know, just because of the lack of ducks coming. And I could go out there and tell you, yeah, we're going to kill on a northwest day, northwest cold front day, we're going to kill widgets, you know, on a northeast, north north day we're gonna kill more mallards um you know and but now it's it's um it's not even worth doing it so we go because it's a traditional thing to do and i still love going out there um but we don't near about see call decoy or kill the ducks that we used to yeah it's it's tough and like my job i drive all over the state of missouri and i'll go into arkansas and uh I run a delivery route every day, just all over the place, and it'll be January, and I'll be delivering 
you know, two hours west of me and just see thousands and thousands of birds. And I'll, <laughs> I'll text my buddy. I'm like, hey, there's birds out here. And, you know, I know guys over on that side of the state. And I'm like, have him go over there, you know, do some scouting, knock on some doors. And it, at the end of the day, it's like, dude, this is two and a half hours away. And do I trust this guy to go out and actually do the right scout? And, <laughs> you know, it just, it's a hassle. It's, it gets to the point. It's like, do I want to drive two and a half hours and take the risk of a not, I like to see stuff with my own eyes. I'm, I'm that yeah. type of person. I want to, I want to see it and make sure that it's right. And, uh, it's like, do I want to take two and a half hours and make this risk and, or do I want to go to the house and uh, go hunt, like you said, 10 minutes from the house and maybe shoot two or three birds and yep. have a day and go back in time for breakfast. That's right. Be with your family. That's, exactly. That's what it's all about. The older I, I get, the being, more I choose the latter. <laughs> yeah, I love being with my family. And even though I, I go and kill a lot of ducks on my lease, it's, uh, you know, I'm three or four days without seeing my wife or my grandchildren or sleeping in my own bed. And, uh, you know, the older you get, the more, um, you want the, 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 the traditional things in life you always did, you know, it's, it's harder for me to keep, uh, to go away like that. But now that she's retired and I'm about to get married, it won't be nothing for us to take hunting vacation and go somewhere. I can hunt a few days and then, then we can go sightseeing. Just like we did with Joe Copeland. He, he took us up to, uh, Yellowstone, and uh, I got to see Yellowstone in the winter, and it was beautiful. And my wife and I had one of the best trips of our lives just going up there. We hunted for three or four days, and then we we did Yellowstone for three days, and just beautiful, beautiful country. And that's the such a cool thing about you know just America in general. It's so freaking yeah. big that I had a guy reach out to me today that was, he heard one of the episodes and I was talking about pintails and how much I love them. And he's like, hey man, come on out here to where I'm at in California. We'll we'll definitely hook you up with some pintails. We shoot them every day. And I was like, you know what? I have been to 21 freaking different countries with the dang Navy. And there's places in America that I've been dying to see that I have not done yet. And it's just, there's so much beautiful country and things to see that uh people who never leave their town or leave you know the the little area that they're used to they're just missing out oh no yeah i was talking to jason evans the other day and we were talking about you know he was at his house he had facetimed me and he was showing me all the beautiful um scenery there in british columbia and you know i told him i said man i, I I'm sure you're used to seeing that. It's every day because I could take him down here to a swamp where there's Spanish moss on trees to the ground. And to me, I see it every day, you know, so I'm used to it. But, man, I was in awe looking at the mountains and the water and, and everything he had up there. And uh, that's another guy that uh, I will always hunt with and call a friend the rest of my life. And I met him through duck calls. <laughs> I can tell you that uh, you were talking about that unfamiliar thing. I uh, I went out to hunt with my buddy in eastern Colorado, just right at the state line. And uh, there's no Rocky Mountains out there. It's just desert and uh, ag land. It's a really, really dry area of ag land. And uh, we drove back through there from Kansas. And it's about a 10, 11 hour drive from Kansas back to Springfield. And 
I was so dang happy by the end of that trip to come back home to the Ozark Mountains and see some hills and trees and just something different. Because you get out there, like I love driving in ag land and seeing birds and going new areas where there's birds in the area. But uh, man, I just cannot imagine some places that you see one tree in the whole horizon and it's just wild. Oh, no. Yeah, no, we we uh we're not hilly here, but it's plenty of trees, plenty of pine trees, cypress trees, oak trees, but uh, no hills. It's no hills. You guys have those crazy. Um, we were driving back from New Orleans a couple months ago, and I told my girlfriend had never been down that way. I said one of my favorite things about traveling through that area of Mississippi and uh, New Orleans or and uh, Louisiana is the the tall pines that look like freaking telephone poles all in a yep. row and she's like what what are you okay i see them. Tree like, <laughs> yeah she's like okay well it's cool it's just a bunch of trees and i was like but look at it like you when yeah. have you ever seen anything like that you know in the they're all mountain? in a row they're they all planted in a row but let me tell you when you're a young kid and you've got an 80 to 100 foot uh yellow pine tree in your yard and you got eight of them and your mom and daddy says go out there and rake the yard you <laughs> hate pine trees man you hate them <laughs> <laughs> they tear up the gutters and everything man yeah well no it's just a pine straw man it'll fall and lay on that ground and 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 it's just completely a brown ground it'll kill your grass and your mom and daddy tells you hey Go out there and rake that pine straw, man. You want to cut them trees down? Ugh. Oh, and it's freaking dusty. And <laughs> actually, the house I own right now, my wife and I bought this one about seventeen years ago, and her prerequisite was no pine trees. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't have a pine tree in our yard. I don't blame you. It <laughs> it's fun to see. There's a lot of stuff that's fun to look at, but you don't want. <laughs> nah, no kidding. So, no kidding. You, you grew up hunting down there in Louisiana. I don't know if you guys have gator problems that far up north. I have to ask guys from the south down we there. We gator too. hunt, yeah. Um, so the state of Louisiana has a gator season. Um, and before uh, the TV show Swamp, uh, Swamp whatever, I forget the name of it, Swamp. The Swamp People or something. Uh, the Swamp People, yeah. Before that came out. It was easier to get gator tags. We uh, now they do a survey on the lakes. They allow gator tags around here, and um, depending on the population of your alligators, is how many tags they would allow and how many hunters. And uh, certainly, we don't get the tag numbers that they get in South Louisiana, but we still have alligator problems here. So, you know, back in the old days, we you would have two hunters per lake get drawn and they get 10 tags each and back in the old days the leather uh industry really paid well so you get 60 65 dollars a foot for an alligator um you know and we did extremely well i mean we bought one of our pro drive rigs from alligator hunt and then uh and then you know some of these shows came out and it got very uh exciting to do and and there were so many people that applied for tags that uh, and was complaining about it that they changed it to 10 hunters, two gators each. 
and the uh, industry sort of fell out of the leather, the, the money-wise did. And uh, so the last time we caught alligators, we had two alligators, and it was $4 a foot. So we actually skinned them ourselves and put them up in freezers and waited till the next year. It went up to about $15 a square foot, uh, a foot, and we went ahead and sold them then. But, yeah, we alligator hunt, but um, it's not as we never had them fight us like you see on TV. We pull them up. As soon as their head gets up above the, the water, we shoot them in the back of the head, and uh, they die, and we pull them in. Ugh. You know you, so. you know all that stuff is staged on TV. I'm sure they're out there shaking the line, getting them all jacked up. <laughs> I've never had one do all that. I mean, we've had one. As soon as they come up, they'll they'll force their way down they'll strip the line off your hand but then if you just ease them up and just get them up above the water they don't do anything you just shoot them and pull them up it's it's not that exciting but um i guess if you weren't from here then it'd be a little more exciting no yeah the guys that are up there living in the mountains in montana they they're more worried about alligators when they live in freaking grizzly bear country and (laughs) what's the biggest gator you ever pulled up 12 12 uh, yeah 12 foot two was my biggest we already had a nine footer in the um in the boat uh so we tagged out that one morning and it was teal season too so they they sort of coincided with teal season so we went out shot our teal and came back in and checked our lines and uh um, they only allow you so many lines now back in the old days man we put out uh, 20 lines and they only allow you a few now but we had both of our our uh gators one twelve two, and 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 one a little over nine foot and we took them in and that was the year that it fell to four dollars a foot and we skinned those two and put them up for a year and waited till the market got a little bit better Good but we quit applying now because i mean literally i got i got sort of mad one year there's there's some younger uh young men that that got the the tags for the lake that I normally gator hunt. And uh, normally, I mean, alligators are usually nocturnal eaters, and you check your lines in the mornings. And, you know, I went out to check on duck blinds about 4 in the afternoon, and I saw a little bitty old six-foot alligator just sitting up there, just dying, man. He just, and he was hooked. And and, uh, so you have to leave your phone number on the, the tree. You put your line. I called the young man, and, Oh, I'm not going to be able to get to him until tomorrow. And I said, dude, your alligator's going to be dead before the, before you get here. And so I cut the darn gator loose. <laughs> I called the game and told him what was going on. And I said, look, this this dude's going to be dead before he gets here. So I just cut it loose. Yeah, there's no sense in him out there suffering, dude. That's crazy. No, yeah, no. That, uh, you said a 12-footer, man. That is a, a freaking dinosaur. <laughs> He's a big one. And when we get through here, I'll text you a picture of it. <laughs> yeah definitely i'll share it on the uh when i post up the episode that's like i said i'm i'm just a a, a simple guy from missouri and you, i i lived down there but it you ain't putting me in the water with a dang gator man <laughs> so, well you know during teal season um we always have the babies around us and they're very inquisitive you'd be out there waiting around putting your teal decoys out and you'll see them little bitty red eyes and, you know, it may be a one-footer or two-footer, and they'll come right up to you, and they're just curious. But, man, their mom and daddy's 
they don't bother you unless them babies start chirping. If them babies start chirping, you better get your rear end back in that boat and get out of the water because here, mama's going to be coming. Ugh. Have you ever uh, shot a bird like a teal and had a gator gator taken before you could get him? No, no, we don't. Uh, I've never had that issue. Um, and, and we we have used dogs during that time. It just depends, um, you know, where we're hunting. But um, our teal hole is super shallow. I mean, it's like ankle deep. And so we can see gators there, and and uh, we usually make sure there's none in that area if we're going to use our dogs. Uh, you know, and down here, you just sort of got to take that into consideration if you're going to use a dog or not, because you are in gator land and breeding season. And like I said, man, them, if you ever heard a baby alligator chirp, um, you ought to see the response mama, mamas make. They, they are not happy. I believe it, man. It's just a, a different level of awareness in the woods. That's a, something you guys down there just have. That's we always say they down here is either going to sting you, bite you, or eat you. <laughs> There's so much, and that's part of what makes Louisiana great. There's just so much wildlife out there that it, it's unlike any place you know, other than maybe Africa or like the freaking Amazon, where there's just so. Because here in Missouri. You might run into the occasional black bear. I've never had any problems with it, but I've had them show up on game cams on uh, places that we turkey hunt, and my buddy sent me a picture of it, and he's like, hey, man, look at this black bear that I caught this morning on the game cam. And I was like, yeah, that thing's got cubs, man. I wouldn't be out there turkey hunting right there. And he's like, oh, it's just a black bear. And I was like, it's got cubs, though. Like, <laughs> you run up on that thing, it's going to get aggressive. Yeah, Louisiana has black bears, too. Um, when I was a fireman, we had a, a call. You know, you heard of the old proverbial cat in the tree. Well, we got the call. A bear was in the tree. And, um, and sure enough, this uh, this old bear, she had ran up the Red River Banks uh, all the way up to Bossier City, Louisiana, which was the city I, I worked for as a fireman. And uh, wildlife fishers came in, and they um, sedated her. We held the net underneath so that she wouldn't hurt herself coming down, and they collared her and took her back somewhere south, I think in the Kasassi National Park, National Forest, and uh, where they let her go. I don't know why she came all the way up the Red River into the city. Huh, maybe searching for some more food. Who knows? (laughs) Well, you make some crazy calls, and when I first saw... You know, I uh, I live down there, but I don't speak the language as much. I saw the name on there, so I had to look up the pronunciation. And it it to me it reads Lan Yap. Yeah, Lan Yap, Lan Yap. Uh, depends on what area of the Louisiana you're from, but it's just a word that that we use, we take for granted. For um, like, if you went to buy a dozen donuts and they threw thirteen or fourteen in there, that you know, somebody say, "Oh, uh, you got Lan Yap." You know, it just means you got something a little extra. And so that call was my original Cajun call. And um, I ended up shortening that call. I, I, I shortened the, the insert. I shortened, uh, I actually advanced the uh, exhaust and I shortened the barrel by a quarter of an inch. And the call became more aggressive. 
a lot more speed. And what I found out was, was you could give it all the air you wanted. And uh, you couldn't overblow it. It just kept getting louder and louder. There's no ring to it. It's it's an open water call. Well, well most people, when they get it, they say it's an all-around call because you can get as quiet as you want to in the timber, but you can get down on that call, and it'll get as loud as you want like an open water call. And so I was trying to think, what in the world am I going to call this, this call? And so my wife and I was driving down the highway, and she said, I was telling her, I said, I really need, I need a name for this call. And she said, because uh, I'm going to have both versions. And she said, uh, well, explain it to me. And I told her, I said, well, it's it's my original call, but it's 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 a little more raspy. It's it's my original call, but the squeal, the, the, the Cajun squeal is a little bit louder. I said, it's my call, but I can blow it louder and more. And she said, you know what you just said? And I said, no. And she said, you just said lanyard. You saying everything is something a little extra, and I said, "I damn sure did." And and so that's where the name came from. Is that call is just something a little extra, and it's lining up. Very cool, man. I I really dig it. It's it's unique. It's so I don't know. I'm in love with the South down there, man. I love it. And if I picked. You know, I'd have family that would come down there and they'd visit in the summertime when the humidity is 95% and it's 98 degrees, you know. And, it's that uh, now, man. It's that here now. Do what? It's hot. I said, it's that way right now. Yeah, exactly. And they would uh, they'd come down there and they'd be like, man, it is so hot and so miserable. And, I should, and I'm like, you should be here the other 10 months out of the year that aren't summer. It's pretty dang perfect in, in March when it's 70 degrees outside and it gets down to, you know, 50 in the morning. It's pretty dang comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like the little call. The little call has done well for me. There's only a few few people now that really like the, the longer, more mellow call. But I keep it in stock or I try to I, – I still have, you know, that jig. I can turn that in custom also. Uh, but 99% of the people that want my calls now, they want the line up. Heck yeah, man. It's a, I don't know, I see it more and more everywhere. What was the, uh, you said that really took off in three or four years ago. What was it like when you, you know, you went from out there turning and I'm sure the list wasn't nearly as long to where you said it got up to 150. What was that moment like when you're like, holy cow, you know, I just... <laughs> yeah, it, over my it, head it, uh, it, it was like, oh my God, I've got to stop taking orders or I'm never going to get these done. And I'm a perfectionist too. I won't, I won't let the call go if I won't hunt it, you know. And so, you know, there's often times I'd mess up tone boards, even doing them as long as I've been doing them. Yeah, there's a point of no return. And uh, and so I have a bucket of, of firewood like a, like a lot of these other ones do. And, and uh you know, I'd end up making another insert or, or whatever I need to do to make it right. Um, but yeah, I, I credit, I really credit the, the NWTF that first year I applied, I ended up winning second, uh, uh, wood, uh, working wood and, and they display the calls out there so that all of those people that come to the NWTF show, they have an opportunity to pick it up and run it. And from that day forward, my phone sort of blew up. That's perfect. That's right. Yeah. 
And yeah, it's those. I feel like it's those meetings, you know, where call makers get together, and you know, you get out there, and uh, you know, the competition is part of it. But going out there and uh, you know, meeting the other call makers, running each other's stuff, bouncing ideas off of each other. I feel like, you know, it's almost what social media has done, where you know, guys will do that through the internet. But I feel like the in-person experience of talking through different things and running ideas and sharing a drink, you know, I feel like that is the, you know, the essence of call making, the most important part of it. I I, I like the, uh, I like the real foot uh, opportunity more than all of it, just because it seems like it's more call makers. Um, You're all living together in the, in the cabins or the trailers and you know it's twenty four seven. Of you're just in everybody's face, and you're sharing, and 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 uh, it's just really a good uh, call maker retreat that you get to share ideas and meet people. And um, and, and with the other events, uh, there are other. There's just so many other people there. It's hard to just stay one on one on 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 you know your call maker people. So, I could definitely get that. I've yeah, asked, real foot. It's a good. It's a good event. I've asked so many different guys, the real foot guys, and uh, only a few of them would do it. What is your favorite Ronnie Turner story? Ronnie Turner. Oh my God, Ronnie Turner and them damn pants, Ronnie has so many stories, man. It's hard to pick one. Um, God, I wish I knew he was listening. Oh, he is. I've he's agreed to do the podcast. We just are trying to nail down the date. So okay, I, I always so, try to ask this question. Man, I don't know if my wife would like this answer. Um, <laughs> well, don't get yourself in trouble. I'm not gonna get myself in trouble. I'm gonna try and stay out of trouble. So. <laughs> So, you know, I, I had talked to Ronnie Turner through THO form back in the old days, and we've instant, or what do you call it, Facebook Messenger each other, but never put a handshake to each other, you know? Well, I was coming to Real Foot, no, uh, NWTF, and... Um, no, actually, we were coming to vacation in Nashville. My wife and I like Nashville area so much, we came up here to vacation. So I called Ronnie to find out what uh, other chicken-eating place was famous in the Nash- in the Memphis area uh, besides Gus's. And so he was like, well, are you coming through? I go, yeah. He says, well, I'm not going to tell you unless you uh, agree to spend the night with me. And I'm like, man, I... I've never really met this man, you know. I don't, I don't know, you know. He seemed very friendly on the, on the telephone, <laughs> and so my wife's sitting there listening to us talking about that. And so I said, uh, "Well, man, I, you know, I've already got reservations at the Peabody, you know, a place where the ducks come down in March every morning." So he says, "Well, I ain't telling you unless you come spend a night with me." And I said, "Man, have you even talked to your wife?" No, I'd be okay with her. Y'all just come stay with us. I'm looking at my wife going, this guy wants us to stay with him. She said, you ever met him? I'm going, I ain't never met him. <laughs> but now that I've met him 
and loved on him, yes, I would spend the night with Ronnie and his his lovely wife and uh, no crazies. But I, I had to give him a different excuse, and he'll know why. And, and but I just don't want to embarrass uh, him. Uh, me and my wife, so I, I think I'll leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> but if he's listening, he is laughing his rear end off. <laughs> I'll make sure to tag him in it, so that way he uh, he checks it out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, sir, I appreciate you giving me some time tonight, man. It's been a blast, and uh, it's been long overdue. I appreciate you contacting me and letting me be a part of this, huh? Let an old man do something like this. This was exciting. I've never done nothing like this in my life. It, it's a lot of fun. When I first started it, I had the idea of just, you know, getting out and talking to different guys and, uh, you know, kind of sharing some of their stories. And I found that I, I like it almost as much as call making. I've taken a lot of time away from call making to do these things because there's we're just all like-minded. I've said it so many times that it, it almost sounds like a stigma, but... Duck hunters and call makers, we have an addictive personality. And, um, you know, you find that thing that you love and you just surround yourself with it. And it, you want it to be every part of your life, you know, and your family gets involved. And it's just stuff like this that's so special that uh, I oh, really yeah. enjoyed doing. Oh, good. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and the, and the avenue that you uh, provided for call makers. Thank you, sir. And if uh, if guys want to reach out and get on your your soon to be opening list, where would they uh, get a hold of you at, or just even to uh, talk it's just, it, Yeah, it's just easier to message me through Ethan Cajun calls on my page. Um, once I start turning a few calls that I want to turn and, and putting them up for sale, I'll just be posting them on, on that for first come first serve <coughs> until I'm getting ready to start taking orders again. That's the way to do it, brother. Well, I will let man, you... Man, you need to trade, too, man. I need to get one of them Chris Adam calls. Well, if you want something, a, a paperweight to hold down that list you got there, I'd be glad to do it and be honored to do it for you, sir. No. I'll, I'll be glad to do that, man. We'll just... We'll make a trade. We'll make that happen. Sounds good to me, and I will let you get back to work tonight, all right? Take care, brother. All right. Thank you. Enjoy it. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys, that was Mr. Kent Eastman. Not Eastman, Eason. I, uh, yeah, it's been a day. I get to get up in uh, about five hours for work. So I'm not going to hold you guys any longer. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And uh, make sure you share, like, do all the normal social media stuff. I, uh, I'm so thankful that you guys are following along and sharing. This thing has grown just insane. I made a post the other day on... Uh, on the page that last week we passed what we did the whole month of April and uh, we're on pace and we tripled in May what we did in April so we're on pace to double that again it's just really really taking it off and it's because you guys have been sharing everything and uh, I hope you've been enjoying it so uh, without further ado have a good night